Welcome to the Stay the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Lawrence Leppard. Welcome to the show. Very nice to join you guys. Uh, look forward to talking to you. Yeah, fantastic. So just before we get into the financial markets and your expertise, could you just tell us a bit about Equity Management Associates and what you do? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. We, um, it's, a, it's a private fund, uh, private investment partnership that we manage. We have uh, investors and limited partners. And the theme of the fund really is uh, sound money or investing in things which uh, represent sound money. Good, good uh, luck. Good luck finding any of those at the moment. Yeah, right. Yeah, to pr- protect our investors from what we perceive to be the greatest threat to their wealth today, which is uh, inflation and perhaps ultimately runaway inflation. And so the way we to translate what that means, we tend to um, and have historically been big investors in gold and silver and gold and silver mining stocks, which are obviously are companies which produce gold and silver and therefore represent alpha over and above the underlying metal. And then we've also morphed into uh, having a Bitcoin um, exposure, both in terms of actually owning the coins and self-custody, but also um, uh, investing in small companies, what we consider to be kind of Bitcoin venture capital things, uh, invest in a couple of partnerships, and we invest in a couple of individual companies that are small, but we think could become big because they are providing Bitcoin-related services. So. It sounds like you don't expect Bitcoin to go away anytime soon. Oh, definitely not. I mean, in fact, we think it's got a very bright future, you know, albeit it's quite volatile, as we all know. Um, but, you know, the way we characterize it, we think gold is analog sound money with a 5,000-year history. And Bitcoin is digital sound money, which is being slowly but surely adapt, adopted. And that adoption curve, you know, makes it um, potentially have a lot more asymmetry than gold. I mean, I think as money is debased, and you know, as we all know, the world is, is made up of a place where money is being debased at, we believe, an ever-increasing rate, um, we think these are the two soundest assets to own. You know, they're, they're, they represent forms of money without any counterparty risk. Um, you know, the other, there are other sound assets to own. Real estate would probably be one of them, but you can't move it and it's taxable, so it's, it's got those negatives. And we consider bonds to be a, an ultimate, you know, an unmitigated disaster in the next 10 years. And stocks are kind of somewhere between the sound money stuff and bonds. So they'll, they'll probably, you know, the companies will be alive. And so they'll protect your purchasing power because they'll reprice and whatever the new currency, you know, comes to be. But, um, um, you know, there'll be a lot of ups and downs along the way, very much like the 1970s. I mean, we, we believe we're entering a period that's going to very much be akin to what we saw in the 1970s. And in that period, um, gold stocks and oil stocks uh, were the two best performing asset classes by by miles. I mean, kind of compound IRRs of 30% a year, I think, in each category. You mentioned inflation. Do you have a specific view or a definition of inflation? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously it's dilution of the money supply. I mean, there are lots of ways of looking at it. There are lots of pieces to it because of a you know, system based on credit and, and money velocity changing and so on and so forth. But but in its broadest sense, it's just um, you know all the money outstanding has a claim on goods and services, and you know there's there's a fixed amount of goods and services, admittedly growing, but a fixed amount of goods and services you can't just print, you know, corn or oil or you know even workers. You know you can't print workers uh, yet. <laughs> yeah, I might change that. Um, and and you know the amount of money outstanding has a claim on it, and so you know pretty much by definition, if you increase 
the amount of money outstanding by large amounts, then the price, you know, you've got more money competing for the same number of goods and services, the price are higher. I mean, a classic example of this, as we all know, is that in, in the COVID response with all the spending and borrowing that happened by the government, you know, the money supply increased by 42% in a, in a period of under two years. And, um, you know, the, the Fed lied and said that was transitory. Of course, it wasn't. And, and we're now paying the price for that lie and that monetary expansion. So I, we normally talk about cryptocurrencies later on, but so I'm really pleased to go straight into that. Um, however you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, it's you great. Guys. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say um, that there's so much to unpack with the, what the Fed have been doing and, you know, how yeah. they said they weren't going to raise rates and then just yank them up at a crazy clip. And now it looks like potentially they may have moved too far too fast, depending on your view. But but if if we go back to the the Bitcoin, um, I'm really interested in your your view there because that's that's quite fascinating that you're um, that as a real money manager you're bullish on um, on Bitcoin. I think what, what what's really interesting at the moment about the the current um, state of the market is that you've a, have actually got yields that are going up quite aggressively in terms yeah. of the bond markets, and Bitcoin seems to be you know, going up as well. And ETH is going up a bit um, today and, and has been in an upward trend. Uh, they seem to be fairly well correlated, although Bitcoin seems to be outperforming, which has surprised a few people. Um, yeah. I, I was interested in the the idea that it seems to be withstanding this higher yield environment, whereas before people were just saying, well, Bitcoin only goes up because we've had negative yields and interest rates at, at zero interest rate policy. But actually, that's not quite true now. Well, that's right. That That's occurring. It's also, you know, it also used to go up as a risk on asset like the NASDAQ. And of course, the NASDAQ has been going up. So one could argue that it's partly as a result of that. But another, you know, I look at both of them. I'm always considering the prices of both of them because they're measured in fiat currency. And so I consider them to be good leading indicators of the, if the fiat currency is healthy or not. And you're right. I mean, the, the r real yields were incredibly negative before the Fed started this rate hike cycle. I mean, you know, the, the bonds were, you know, one, two, three percent, something like that. And, and inflation was eight or nine percent. So that's an unbelievable negative real yield. Now that the shorter term part of the curve has been brought up to four or five percent, it's it's slowed that, you know, it, it's shrunk that negative real yield. Um, and one would think that that would also have a bad impact on gold. And admittedly, you know, gold's not making new all time highs, but it's not that far away. I mean, gold has bumped up against kind of the 2050 level. Uh, several times in the past few years and today it's in the kind of 19 1910 or 1920 level so that's only six percent below and you know my view is that that implies to me that we are in a long-term bull market for gold if the most aggressive rate hiking cycle since paul volcker can only bring gold down six percent off its recent all-time high uh, that's you know that's not very impressive right that yeah <laughs> you know that that they've got inflation under control. And so I, I think Bitcoin and gold look through the lies that the Fed and others are telling us. I mean, the, you know, the prevailing wisdom and the, and the story they're all saying is, um, you know, the Fed will get inflation under control and it'll go back down to 2% and we'll live in a deflationary environment very akin to what we had from 1981 to 2020. Um, and I don't believe that. I, I take the other side of that bet. I think that March 2020 was peak deflation. You know, the 10-year trade as low as 50, 50, 55 basis points briefly. Um, and, and I think we've now, as a result of a lot of factors, not just one factor in particular, but a lot of factors have now combined 
to put us in an environment where it is clearly inflationary. Um, and, 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 and that's not going away. Now, it can wax and wane. And if you look at the chart of the 70s, there's a guy on Twitter named Tavi Costa, um, so, um, you know, who shows that in the 70s, there were three waves of inflation with each being a higher top and a higher low. And so I think, you know, we had the first wave of inflation, you know, coming out of the 42% money supply print, uh, growth in print. And, um, and that, you know, I, I guess the headline number topped up around eight or nine. Um, you know, it's come back in. It's, it's kind of now in the five area. Um, I believe the head, actually the headline might be lower. I think the core is, is around five. But anyway, long story short, it's come back in. So, you know, we've had, and this is a result of all the rate increases and so forth. Um, but I, you know, I don't think it's going back to two. And I also think the Fed is trapped and eventually there'll be more Silicon Valley bank-like problems in the system that will force them to both chop interest rates and, you know, stop the quantitative tightening, perhaps even return to their quantitative easing. And that that will fuel the next level of inflation. The other thing that's helped them get inflation down, that's kind of a one-time event. I think a lot of people fail to focus on is that oil's, oil prices have been under control, but oil prices have been under control because Biden drained the, the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So, um, and, and that's a one-time deal, right? You can't drain it twice. Um, now there's still some left in it, but you can only take it down so low. I guess at the bottom of it all, we're not even sure that oil is good. But the, the point is that, you know, um, if they start to either try and refill it or the price of oil starts to go up again, you know, I, I think we're going to have another inflationary upwave and, and that, and that will, um, you know, it has a lot of implications for everything. But in my view, it will push gold to a new all-time high, which, you know, kind of 20, 2100 an ounce. I mean, we've hit 2050 a couple times. So if we got to 2100 an ounce, I would call that a definitive breakout. And then on top of that, I think I think Bitcoin, the last top was 68,000. I mean, I expect we'll see Bitcoin through 100,000 sometime in the next 12 to 18 months. So, um, and that's just because these governments can never stop printing money and they continue to run huge deficits. I mean, that's, you know, the, the thing that would make my thesis wrong is if the government suddenly got fiscal responsibility. But, you know, as I just read over in the UK, you guys, I mean, you know, uh, your guy, whatever it is, Sunak, whatever, came out and said, you know, we're going to start sending checks to people because everybody's hurting. And I'm thinking, all right, that's nice. Where's that money coming from? <laughs> Do you the think... Answer, the answer is they're going to print it, right? <laughs> Do you think exactly. central banks... Do you th I mean, this is the most chaotic market environment I've experienced in a little over 30 years in the business. Do you Me think too. central banks can actually survive the chaos that's probably inevitable now? Well, that's a great question. I mean, that is the $64,000 question. I think I think over a long enough time period, the answer is absolutely not. You know, it's, it's the, the contractions are getting shorter, the swings are getting wider, the amount printed is getting bigger. I mean... Consider that in 08, we went from what a 900 billion dollar balance sheet to I don't know three trillion, but that took four, five, six years. I mean, this time we went from three trillion to you know I don't know nine, almost eight point something trillion. I mean, in the space of 18 months, right? And so, uh, in my opinion, they are slowly but surely losing control of this system, and it's going to blow up, and we're going to have to have a new system or some serious reform, or there'll be a debt jubilee, or there'll be a revaluation of gold the way Roosevelt did it. or I mean, there are a lot of various monetary choices they can make in terms of, you know, or, or they'll try and shove us all into CBDCs. I mean, you know, one doesn't know what the other side's going to do. And 
you know, my belief is that they will do everything they can to protect their system and protect their privilege because people at the top get very rich off this system. The, the difference is, I mean, I, I think I'm absolutely with you in relation to the best analog to what we're currently living through being the 1970s. I guess yeah. the difference this time around is there wasn't the de-dollarization and the rise of the right. so-called BRICS yeah. in the 70s. So the dollar yeah, was still no, preeminent. Right. And, 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 the, and the debt, the U.S. government debt to GDP wasn't 130%, it was 30% or something. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, arguably it's going to be much worse than the 70s, but I think you know, let's just start there. That it, that it, to me, it looks a lot like the '70s, and I think it could ultimately be worse. And yeah, my, my, you know, my inside, you know, bet, and I've been plenty wrong before. I mean, I thought things were all over in 2008, so that shows you that I'm not a good indicator necessarily of what's going to happen. But my inside bet is that by the time we hit the 2030s, we'll be looking at a completely new monetary system. That this one just will not be able to make it that far, you know. And there'll have, there'll have been another. You know, the, the GFC, as bad as it was in 08, that will actually look small by comparison or that will be or there will be something similar to that when this next, you know, ne the next couple of swings in this in this pendulum. I think the other thing that seems to be different now versus, say, 2008 is I think people, by and large, are much more aware of the level of political corruption throughout the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look at France, right? I mean, people are just disgusted and kind of universally. And um, yeah, and, and you know, the, and the young people have caught on to it. I mean, I've been fighting this gold battle for 25 years, you know, sound money, Austrian economics, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just an old cranky gold bug. And, you know, so along comes Bitcoin. And then, you know, Safety Dean Amos writes this brilliant book called The Bitcoin Standard, which everyone should read. Absolutely got to read it. And, um, you know, all these young kids read it and they're like, oh, I get it. This is why we're getting screwed. This is why we can't afford houses. This is why the system's really, really broken. And so they become Bitcoiners and then they start advocating for it. So, I, you know, I've got 20 and 30 year olds walking up to me at conferences quoting von Mises, right? I'm <laughs> like, how the hell did this happen? Right? This is really great. You know, it's not it's not just us old cranky gold bugs that understand the value of sound money. The Bitcoiners get it, too. And so, you know, it, it, it's just a matter of time. Right. I mean, it's an idea. It's an, the pain has gotten too large from the broken monetary system, these wide swings that we have. I mean, you know, I, I consider the economic pain that the Federal Reserve and these guys have caused. I mean, all the people who lost their houses in 2008. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, it makes it very hard to be a business person. It makes it very hard to be anybody. You know, what's the right interest rate? What, you know, should you buy housing? Shouldn't you buy housing? You know, companies go to the moonshot and then they fall apart. And I mean, it's these swings are just they're, they're devastating for many people and many families. And so, you know, we, we got to solve this problem. And, uh, a very wise, a very wise person once once said to me that um, gold is not even an investment. I'm co quoting him directly now. Gold yeah. is not even an investment. It is a conscious decision to refrain from investing until the return of an honest monetary system makes a calculation of relative asset prices possible again. That's that's a very astute quote, and I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, it it, it is money. It's core money. Always has been. Always will be. And um, you know, and and and. You know, the fact the government can't print it. And so so this bet, I mean, the reason why we're all in this game and the reason why, you know, we're making the bet we're making is that we've watched the political system deteriorate to the point where it's just blatantly obvious how corrupt it is and how what they're doing is wrong. And more importantly, how the math, you know, sows the seeds of their destruction. I mean, my Twitter twi pin, uh, pinned tweet 
shows you know the the growth rate of all sector debt as composed composed to the compared to the growth rate of GDP. And what you see is that all sector debt is growing much more rapidly than GDP. But guess what? It's the GDP that allows you to service the interest and pay down the debt. And so eventually you, you get to a point which I call Stein's law. A Nixon economist named Herbert Stein coined the law, said if something cannot go on forever, it will end. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. I don't, uh, know if, I, I don't know if you know the, uh, the name Albert Bartlett. I don't, no. A professor in, I think, I can never remember its maths or physics, but he, he died a few years ago, but he was a professor in one of those things. And he, he, he he's given one of the most excellent YouTube presentations. It's had like, literally like millions of views, but he said basically that one of mankind's biggest failings is our inability to understand the power of the exponential function. In other yeah. words, the power of something compounding over time, like, for example, d government debt. Yes, yes. I've, I've heard that. I didn't know he was the one who coined that phrase. Yeah. Completely agree, hundred percent agree. Yeah, no, it's just, and it's and it's sad because the system is broken, um, and you know, I think some pain could be avoided if we had, you know, intelligent leadership that wanted to address it right now, and say, look, we got a problem with the system. We got a returnative sound money system. Here's how we're going to do it, and that, that's all multiple hour long discussion that I could have with you. But, but the point is, there are solutions to the problem. But, you know, think about it from a political courage point of view. You know, it's just so much easier for the politicians to ignore it and kick the can. And, you know, we're kind of getting to the point where the can's really heavy and the road's really short and something's going to break. If you were in charge right now, if you put in charge right now, obviously you would resign. Be, resign. I want to be in charge, by of the course. way. But no, ahead. of course. Absolutely. Uh, you, it's like the old joke about... You know, somebody asking for directions and they say I wouldn't start from here but, <laughs> right. you know um, but if you were put in charge what would be the first thing or the f most the highest priority well, I, things I think, you would I do I think what I would do is I would try to educate everybody that how broken the system is because whatever you do people are going to squawk and they're going to be mad at you but I think I would I would try to I would run a very big campaign to show how broken the system is and 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 therefore maybe educate everybody so that then when I I started doing the policies I do and they say, well, I get why the guy's doing this. Um, and, and the policies that I would do is something maybe like a Roosevelt or, you know, the, the fireside chat. Yeah, well, exactly. Explain it and say, look, you know, this is going to blow up and it's going to end really badly. The fairest way to deal with this and, and, you know, restructuring, this isn't going to be pain free. Everybody's going to have to absorb some pain. We've lived beyond our means and we have to address that. But, but on the other side of this, what you're going to have, what you have to look forward to is you're going to have a fair system where, you know, the, the rich don't get richer and everybody's got a fighting chance at doing well and so on and so forth. And by the way, you know, a lot of the average people don't have, I mean, the people who are going to be hurt in what I'm describing most are bondholders and then second most are stockholders. And in many cases, those people are extremely rich and, um, you know, um, the average guy doesn't have a lot of bonds, he doesn't have a lot of stocks, he doesn't have a lot of savings, he just knows inflation's eating him alive. And so he should be in favor of this plan. But then what you do is you go and you say, okay, we've got way too much debt, we don't have enough income to service the debt. Um, what we are going to do is we're going to create a new currency. I mean, let's say for the U.S. like Roosevelt, he, he devalued against gold by 70% overnight after he'd swiped all the gold, which I thought was incredibly illegal. But setting that aside, I wouldn't swipe anybody's assets. What I would say is, we are going to create a new asset. We're going to create a new dollar 
and five old dollars equals one new dollar. You can turn them in right now. And one new dollar is backed by gold at a valuation of $40,000 equals one ounce. And mm. you can exchange at any point in time with the government, back, forth, whatever you want. But there will, you know, there, there's no, no dollars are going to be created that aren't worth $40,000. Um, we're not going to print any. Um, we're going to, we're going to be forced to be, remain honest because if somebody comes to us with a dollar and says, or 40,000 says, I want an ounce of gold, we've got to give it to them. And so then immediately the price of gold would go to $40,000 and all the mining companies would produce enough gold to meet that demand. And you would be back on a gold standard. You would be back on a sound money standard. Now to take it a step further, I actually think a better step than that would be to go all the way to Bitcoin. But I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding that only because I'm just not sure the world is ready to get there yet. And I'm not sure the Bitcoin infrastructure is deep enough yet to handle that. And I'm not sure I want to take the entire world economy and bet it on a technology that's 14 years old. But ultimately, I think Bitcoin will replace gold and we should be on a Bitcoin standard. So, um, and, you know, Bitcoin will be mad at me for su suggesting we do gold first. But I think, I think as a practical matter, you know, you, you're, trying to, you're trying to get everybody to accept an enormous change. And, and a big positive would be going in the right, in the right direction of having your, your money backed by something sound, which is gold, um, or something sound, which is Bitcoin. And, and who knows, you could, there are a lot of, you could do currency board, you could do a hybrid of the two. You know, you could say, uh, you know, $100,000 is equal to X, you know, a tenth of a Bitcoin and an ounce of gold. I mean, whatever the math is, you can figure it out. But, but the point is, if you really have a system and the exchangeability is truly there, then the government can't print money to pay their debts. And so suddenly, you know, they, they can't get into a war unless they're willing to increase taxes. They can't, you know, the, I mean, the, the dirty little secret is that, you know, we pay our income taxes at whatever percentage of money you make, but that's not really all the tax you pay. You also pay the inflation tax on top of that. Um, I'd also probably in conjunction with this, go to a flat tax or a value added tax to try and incentivize savings versus uh, consumption. Um, well, the the but, Georges would just advocate a land tax and, and scrap everything else. Well, you could do that. I mean, I, I, I understand that too. I mean, that, yeah, um, I understand that too. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think government needs to be shrunk enormously. I think mean, worldwide governments consume way, way, way too many resources. I mean, in my opinion, governments, you know, the, what, what the founding documents in the United States were set up to be were such that, you know, governments were meant to be a fair referee. And to keep people honest and to, to have, you know, you need a government because you need laws because you want to be able to throw criminals in jail. And, you know, without without a, without a system of laws, you know, uh, criminals run wild. So so you need government for that and you want a police force and so on and so forth. You used to need it for military. I think I think we collectively get to the point where we can really wind that piece down. But setting all that aside, you know, if government weren't in all the things that they got into, you know, I think a 10% flat tax and, you know, that would be plenty to pay for the police and the courts and the things that you need to, to keep the system fair. And that's, that's really what you want. What you want is a fair system. Um, and so, you know, and, and you want, you want a system where the people who are making economic decisions are making them based on sound pricing. And when, you know, I mean, as an example, if you go look at a chart of like lumber for the last seven years, I mean, it, it looks like a, you know, it looks like a yo-yo string. I mean, it's like, you know, think about the building of the pandemic, the crash, the COVID. I mean, it's just 
up, down, up, down, up. I mean, there's just no stability to it because nobody knows if they're coming or going uh, on prices. You know, and I mean, so yeah, yeah. So, sound money is the is the underlying core issue that we need to fix. And um, there are a lot of proposals and ways to do it. And you know, the two most obvious neutral forms of sound money that I think can and will fix the system are gold and Bitcoin. What are the chances of us moving to a position of um, hyperinflation, do you think, in the next sort of five to 10 years? That's a great question. I think quite high within 10 years, I'd say less high within five. Um, I don't know how many more kicks at this can they got. I don't know how many more swings they've got. Um, you know, I think at a minimum, we're looking at pretty high kind of Argentina slash South American style inflation. But that's not hyperinflation. I mean, inflation of 10, 15, 20% a year is not hyperinflation. It's very high inflation. It's very painful. But if you could actually do that and grow the economy at that similar rate, and we could somehow stop the taking out of more debt, you know, this is similar. The, the debt load we have is similar to what we had after World War II. And they were able to financially repress people back then and force them. They did yield curve control. And they forced everybody to get in on bonds to basically get robbed. Um, because people were patriotic and they bought war bonds and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, they could do that. And, um, and that would, you know, maybe we'd work our way out of it without hyperinflation. I think that, you know, they're, they're on the path to hyperinflation right now just because the swings are so wild. I mean, you know, and, and hyperinflation occurs as a result of a mass um, exodus into what, what we call Gresham's Law, which is sound money pushes out good. So, um, you know, is um, or I'm sorry, bad money push out good is what I meant to say. Um, you know, if if they, you know, if they turn around and they say we're going to do QE, we're going to print more money, we're going to drop interest rates down again, we got to get this economy going. And I think that will happen. I don't know the time frame; it could be another year or so. But I do believe that will happen because ultimately, I think everything is going to get so bad that bitching about inflation anymore, they're going to be bitching about the fact the economy is melting and unemployment is going up very rapidly. And so at that point in time, I think the reverse course and we'll go back into a printing regime. And then, you know, the bottom of this inflation cycle will have been three, four, five percent. And then the high of the last one was eight or nine. Well, guess what? This next one will go to 12 or 13. And, you know, gold will go to three or four thousand. Bitcoin will go to 50, 60. I mean, 100 plus thousand. And, um, you know, you'll you'll and, and what that will do, the signal that will send to people is, oh, my God, if I got bonds, I got to sell them. And geez, these things are even doing better than my, my, my stocks. I mean, stocks have done pretty well, but it's really only seven or eight stocks that have done well. Um, you know, I think what we've got going on in the stock market right now is just kind of an echo bubble that will end badly. So it's my view that, um, you know, each of these swings takes us closer to hyperinflation. Now, you know, when inflation's at 15%, what do they do? I mean, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that somewhere in here we'll get some better political leadership that will say, gosh, this is a fundamental underlying problem. Here's my proposal to fix it. What do you guys think? And the proposal sounds similar to what I just described earlier. So, I mean, that's, that's an entirely you know, possible outcome. And if that occurs, they can, they can cut off the tail risk of hyperinflation. But if inflation goes to 20%, I mean, the way it tends to work when you look at like Turkey recently or, you know, Argentina recently, you know, inflation goes to 10 or 15, then it goes to 20 or 25, then it goes to 30 or 40. You know, this is annual, I'm talking annual rates now. Then it, then it just starts to, 
And, and at some point in there, guys, what happens is people go, oh, shit, they can never stop this. They, they have got, you know, it's out of control. And therefore, you say anyone who has capital, savings capital, says to themselves, I got to get the hell out of this currency. I got to sell this shit. I don't want to hold any dollars. I don't want to hold any treasury bills. I don't want to hold any bonds, et cetera. And, and by definition, if, if, if the bondholders don't want to hold bonds, they sell them. And the bidder says, I want a higher interest rate to buy them. And so interest rates go up higher and, and you get into this big doom loop. I mean, if you get on Twitter or any other place, you Google, you know, U.S. federal debt interest expense. And, um, you know, it's just going straight up. I mean, it was, you know, 300 billion, you know, four or five years ago. And, you know, we're at 850, 900 billion a day going to, you know, a trillion plus. And the second derivative is, is very steep. And, um, and by the way, that trillion adds to the debt burden, which then means more bonds that need to be sold. Those bonds need to be sold. The buyers say, ah, I don't really like them at this interest rate. So they, they demand a higher interest rate. Well, you can see where I'm going here. You're in a vicious cycle. And this has happened to many third world countries. This is not unusual. I mean, there's a, a sovereign, what we're in is a sovereign debt crisis and a sovereign currency crisis. And, and guess what? Other countries, we've had these for 100 years. There have been a lot of hyperinflations. And there have been a lot of just high inflations. Um, but there's never been one like this with the world's reserve currency, which is the United States, or at least not since Roman days when they trashed the denarius and took the silver content away from it. So, you know, it's it's a we're kind of in uncharted waters here. I mean, one of you said earlier this is the toughest macro environment you've seen in thirty. I completely agree, and you know, some very very smart investors who I respect who are much smarter than me, like you know, Druckenmiller, Stan Druckenmiller. Uh, say the same thing. I said this, is, this macro situation is unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented, and he doesn't necessarily know how to play it. But he's he's a fan of gold. He's a fan of Bitcoin. And I think I think anybody who you know objectively is an analyst in these markets and looks at them carefully, you have to come away thinking to yourself, boy, I gotta have some of this sound money stuff. It's just it's it's you know the and, and, I mean and what would make me change my mind? Like I say, if government got really responsible. Because that could that could happen really easily, really quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, well, you I, think, you I think you're being sarcastic, but I don't know. It, it, it's not impossible. I mean, stranger things have happened, right? It's not impossible. But. You mentioned the, you mentioned the echo boom because this feels very much to me like the basically the end of February, two thousand, and the first dot com boom, and you know, totally valuations valuations has gone completely out of out of whack. Absolutely. We gave a presentation last week to some clients and. We liberated a few slides from a company I'm sure you, you'll be familiar with, Incrementum in Liechtenstein. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ronnie really well. They, they have great yeah. slides. Yeah, yeah Ron, Ronnie does a, a, a great job there. And one of the one of the slides we, we liberated from their pack, the In Gold We Trust report, was, so here's a compare and contrast. Right now, you could buy Apple or you could buy every stock in the silver, gold, copper, precious, and diversified metals mining sector and have a trillion dollars left over. Wow. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Now that is a statistic. That is a very, very interesting statistic. And and look, I mean, Apple has a lot of cash flow and they have a real monopoly on- uh, You can't so make iPhones without fucking metal. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, no, the, the, look, the relative values, I mean, there are other good charts out there. I think Ronnie had a few of them in his report where they show, you know, the average allocation to precious metals is like less than half a percent of people's portfolios and you know maybe there's, there's i want to say 
you know, like, like first of all, like 80% of the people in the world have, or higher, I think it was, it was like 85% of the people in the world have zero allocation of precious metals. So, okay, so what's the, the remaining 15%, like maybe 10% of the remaining, 10 of the remaining 15 have an allocation of less than half of 1% of their portfolio. And the other 5% have an allocation of somewhere between 1 and 3% or 1 and 5%. I mean, it's like nobody is here. Nobody is, you know, and, and I mean, the, the numbers I use to compare this or to try and make this point to investors when I'm trying to convince them to, you know, give us capital and manage, I say, look, guys, there's four or $500 trillion, trillion dollars of fiat. This is currency, bonds, and stocks. So if you kind of consider all the financial assets in the world is at least $400 trillion. It might be bigger. Okay. All the gold in the world, and this includes a lot of which is not accessible because it's either on women's necks or it's in museums. All the gold in the world is about 10 or 10 or so trillion. And realistically, probably only about half of that's available for sale. So call it $5 trillion of gold. And all the Bitcoin in the world is a grand total of $600 billion, And most of that's not for sale either because a lot of people are crazy, you know, just totally committed to hodling it. So... So if you, and then all the gold stocks, as we pointed out a minute ago, and this isn't including copper, that makes the number bigger, but all the gold and silver mining stocks are less than a trillion. So, you know, call it $7 trillion of what I would consider to be sound money, alternative investments, you know, gold, silver, gold mining stocks, and Bitcoin. As against 400 trillion of paper that will someday be 500 and then 600 and bigger and bigger as people continue to print it. I mean... And you can't print gold, you know, you just can't. So, you know, all it takes, and, and we're seeing it, is more and more of the people kind of waking up to the, you know, saying and realizing, and it's hard because people invest in the rearview mirror. Hey, look, for 40 years, owning stocks was a good thing. Owning bonds was a good thing. It worked. It really worked. It's not such a good thing anymore. I mean, 2022 was the worst year in 75 years for the stock and bond markets. It's a terrible year. But, you know, ironically, you know, the stock market came right back. Bond market hasn't come back so much. But, you know, the, the point is that um, people are really set in their ways to invest in this stuff. And what they're going to slowly but surely realize as inflation continues to go and as gold performs well, silver performs well, and Bitcoin performs well, they're going to realize they're getting killed because their stuff isn't going to be going up as much and our stuff is, is going to be going up as much and or more. And they'll, they'll come over to our camp. And we don't need all 400 trillion to chase our stuff. You know, if, if, if 7 trillion of it comes our way, you know, well then that will double the value of all the things we hold because there's only a fixed amount of what we hold. So, it, you know, it's common, but it, it takes time. And, um, you know, this is a, this is a multi-year macro theme that, you know, Incrementum does a great job of documenting and that, that my fund is pretty much built around. So. One of my favorite misconceptions is that by the the skeptics is that there's there's not enough gold in the world. Yeah, to, right. To, to yeah, I love that one to, too, to, right? To yeah. And the way I look at it is, well, actually, an ounce of gold would be sufficient, but the, the price of that ounce of gold is going to be so high, you don't really want to know well, the answer. That's exactly right. I mean, yes, there's plenty of gold. It's just at what price? I mean, I'll give you another statistic that your interest read, listeners might find of interest because I, I always I know I always do. There was a time back pre-71, as you know, 71 was when Nixon took us off the gold standard, gold exchange standard. I mean, America really defaulted. And there was a time pre that when you could look at one of the monetary aggregates, let's just for the sake of argument, say M1 back then, and you could divide it by the number of ounces of gold that the U.S. held in Fort Knox and other places, which some arguably say isn't there, and I kind of tend to believe them, but whatever. 
and you came up with the $35, which was the reference price that they had set at Bretton Woods in 44 as World War II was winding down. And so, you know, okay, X amount of money outstanding, X amount of gold ounces, the dollar's as good as gold. You know, you can divide one by the other. Foreign countries want it, they can come over and they exchange their dollars and say, give us gold. Okay. Well, and that was happening, by the way. We had, at one point, we had 20,000 tons, and now we're down to 8,300 tons. But, and that's why Nixon did take us off, because we were going to get drained of all our gold. Everyone was saying, yeah, you know, we hear what you're saying, but you're printing a ton of money, you know, and, and we don't trust you. So, you know, we'll take the gold. Thank you very much. Um, if you did that exact same math today, okay, go, go take your M1 figure and divide it by the number of ounces of gold that the United States owns, the number you come up with is each ounce of gold should be worth $80,000. So what that tells you, I mean, you should be shocked by that. And what it tells you, it shows you is just how many currency units we've created. And yet we've created no more additional gold in our gold holdings. And so, you know, I, I picked earlier in our conversation, 40,000 as a reference number. Um, you know, I'm not may sure. Not be, may not be high enough. May not be high enough. Well, that's right. I mean, that's right. Well, 80,000 will give you 100% coverage, and most people who've run gold standard economies, are, are, they've kind of concluded, and based on the history, it's been shown that if you've kind of got 40 or 50% coverage, that's enough. You don't have to have every single last dollar covered with a gold ounce, but you got to have a lot of them covered with a gold ounce. So, so Some people have asked me the question as, as whether the gold price has been manipulated, which I... Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. I've said, I believe it is, but how, how yeah. can, but what can one do about it? There's, there's nothing you can well, do until, the, until no, the system, until the system breaks apart. I mean, it, and that's, that's one of the things that one of, the, one of the other reasons why you buy this thing and you do this and it's, you know, you'd rather be, you know, a couple of years too early than a minute too late because mm. it's entirely possible that gold could reset, you know, much higher and it would be an entirely different zip code. I mean, you know, imagine the politician who says, "Hey, I want to reprice the gold. How do we do it?" And his advisors say, "Well, sir, you got to take it to forty thousand. Well, you know, that would be pretty amazing, right, for gold holders. And, and I, all gold holders are aware of that there is no doubt that the, the price is manipulated. That's indisputable. There's a ton of evidence. I recommend people to go to GATA, G-A-T-A dot org, O-R-G, on the web. Um, Chris Powell and Bill Murphy, friends of mine, run that site. They've been running it for 10 plus years. They have documented the, the manipulation and the price of gold. And you know, look, the governments do it because they recognize that gold is the canary in the inflationary you know, mine and they, and they don't want gold signaling how much money they printed and what they're doing and why there is inflation. You know, that's, of, they, just, they don't want it. One of my, so fav one of my favorite quotes is from, I think it was from Paul Milecreast of the Thunder Road. Oh, yeah, he's Ford. great. Yeah, yeah, sure. And this is going back a good decade now. And he said, the next real le leg up in gold will prove to be a religious experience for those people who find themselves short. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it, it, yeah, it, it's, um, you know, and, and you see people, I mean, look, you know, others are figuring this out, right? We had record gold purchases in calendar uh, 2022, uh, particularly in the fourth quarter, a big number from central banks. Um, you know, people worldwide know what is sound money, and they know that gold is sound money. Some know and believe that Bitcoin is sound money. I believe it is sound money. I believe it's superior to gold in many respects. Um, but, um, you know, the percentage of people that have adopted Bitcoin are still relatively low, um, which, you know, which actually bodes well for it because as, I mean, I was talking to you earlier about how all this fiat stuff is going to come after 
all this hard money stuff, you know, the 400, you know, trillion coming after 7 trillion or whatever. Um, in the Bitcoin case, Bitcoin's going to eat some of gold's market share because in the Bitcoin case, here you've got something that doesn't cost anything to store. I mean, I've got gold ounces in, that I store. I pay a guy to guard them. You know, it, it's, it's easy to move around. I can make a payment in Bitcoin in 10 minutes. If I want to move that money that I've got in gold ounces, I got to drive to the place where I haven't deposited. I got to check them out, make sure they're real, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, there, there's some real advantages to, you know, a digital ledger that that represents a sound form of money, which is what I believe Bitcoin is. And so, um, you know, the, the point I'm making is the adoption curve will drive Bitcoin up higher too, because at the margin, you know, particularly younger people, you know, they get, you know, $100,000 of savings. Well, my generation, oh, yeah, I don't want it to get inflated away. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to buy some gold. That's good inflation protection. Well, the younger generation, I think a lot of them are like, yeah, gold's great, but, you know, Bitcoin's better. And so I'm going to, I'm going to buy Bitcoin. And so as those people start to gain more and more of the wealth, I think they're going to, you know, become bigger buyers for Bitcoin and Bitcoin, Bitcoin will ultimately flip gold. I mean, if gold's market cap is caught 10 trillion, Bitcoin's is 600 billion. So, you know, one sixty percent of 1 billion, you know, I, I mean, and the flipping occurs somewhere with Bitcoin around 400, almost $500,000 an ounce, or I mean a coin. So, you know, that's a long way from 30, whatever we're at today. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying it happens tomorrow. It's of course not going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, I, I think we, I think the low is in, I think the 15, whatever it was low that we saw last year, I think that's it. Um, I don't know if the secondary low is in, I don't know if we're going to, you know, if we need one more big event and it collapses and goes down a little bit, if it does, I'll, I'll buy more. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, Bitcoin's going to climb out of this hole and, uh, you know, double or triple sometime in the next few years. So we've got an interesting situation to say the least in the UK where certain politicians are being unbanked by uh, their I banks. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, so whatever your side of the political, uh, arena is, what I don't think people are realizing if they if that if they can happen to them it can happen to you and well, it's setting right. a really bad precedent and i think it's going to encourage more Absolutely. people into yeah and, and 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 at all levels right like like let's talk about the nation state level like you know i'm no fan of russia but you know the rule of law says if you've got 600 billion dollars of foreign reserves and you park them in you know banks wherever the banks aren't supposed to be able to take that from you mm. <laughs> you know what i mean mm. and you know, when the U.S. sees the 600 billion of U.S. of foreign reserves rushed for attacking Ukraine, you know that that sent a very loud and clear message to every country in the world. Huh? You know, if we have reserves in the Western banking system and they don't like what we're doing politically, they can just grab our money. And so, I'm quite sure that at the margin, many of those other countries said, "You know what? Let's not put these reserves in the banking system. Let's use them to buy gold." I mean, that, that may yet be the most counterproductive uh, sanction in in history. I, I agree with you. When they, when they, I was shocked when they did it. I thought, God, this is a stupid move. I mean, it may, yeah. it may yet be that although the financial markets analog is the 1970s, the political analog is actually 1930s Germany. Yes, yes, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's stunning. So with with regard, you mentioned Bitcoin. I just wonder what your opinions were on the 
the other kind of what are called majors, obviously ETH and some of the other technologies. Do you, you just concentrate on Bitcoin and, and that alone or, or do you spread the risk into maybe some more, uh, well, they are more risky, uh, smaller coins and, um, and, and other yeah. technologies? It's a great question. In the early days, I, I kind of thought, well, yeah, I, I want to do that. As I've learned more and more about how all these coins operate and more and more about the systems and, you know, the blockchain and this, that, and the other, I've come to see that Bitcoin really is perfectly constructed. And now there's something on Bitcoin called the Lightning Network, which sits as a layer two of application above it, which allows for quick transactions. I mean, one of the negatives on Bitcoin, obviously, is it takes 10 minutes to settle a transaction or a block. And, you know, the, the fees are high enough that, you know, you wouldn't want to buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin because if the transaction fee is 80 cents, you're paying $2 for the coffee. Well, that doesn't make any sense. But this Lightning net Network helps solve that problem. So, um, you know, the big, to me, I'm what you would call a Bitcoin maximalist, which means I think Bitcoin really is, quote unquote, the invention. And a lot of the, what I call shit coins are struggling to stay relevant, struggling to stay alive. Um, they don't really represent a technological invention. Um, they're they're decentralized, you know, um, and or they're not decentralized. I'm sorry. They they have you know one group of people at the top setting monetary policy. I mean, you know, look at this guy Vitalink who runs Ethereum. I mean, they've changed the monetary policy of Ethereum six or seven times, and the monetary policy of Bitcoin is kind of written in code and unchangeable unless over half the Bitcoin holders vote to fork it in a way that's negative. To their own interests, and I can't see that happening. It seems extremely unlikely. Would it change so, your view? Would it change your view on Bitcoin if it transpired that it was actually a creation of the CIA? Um. Yeah, it might a little bit, but I, I, I really strongly doubt that. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, we've if you're if you're over here, well, you can do it anywhere else on the web, but if you know where to look, you can find a lot of the old cyberpunk punk stuff where they were in you know meeting rooms and chat rooms all the 2008 2009 2010 stuff and you know for example that hal finney is a guy who sent one of the first transactions you know so it's my belief that actually satoshi nakamoto is a composite of about three or four guys who worked on it together realized they didn't want to be high profile realized they wanted to be pure and said let's just release it in the world and see what happens and sure enough they released it and People started using it, got picked up upon, and they just said, "Okay, well, it looks like it's working fine. We're gonna we're gonna move on." You know, I don't want to make this about myself. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's. Um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? I'm trying. There was another piece of your question. That I feel like I missed. <laughs> no, no, really. I mean, I, I guess I'm just trying to sort of play devil's advocate that the yeah. the origin oh, the CIA, of the, the CIA the origin piece. Of yeah. yeah, I don't buy the CIA piece. I just don't. I really don't. I, I don't think they're that smart. I don't think they did it. I don't think there's any evidence of it. Um, I, you know, Adam Back was one of the early guys. I mean, he could partially be a, a Satoshi. If not, he's very close to it you know, being one because part of his invention got used in it, this whole hash hashing mechanism that they use. Um, and, you know, he was back there in the day and he was interfacing with these people and it was real. You know, and unless you think Hal Finney was, who's now passed, unless you think he was a CIA plant, I don't based on what we all know about his history and his record. I think this was just a bunch of computer techies, you know, and, and by the way, this experiment had been tried. This is not the first form of computer-based electronic cash to exist. This experiment had been tried and there'd been some launches and some failures, you know, 
um, in the 10 or 15 years before the 2008 launch of Bitcoin. And in fact, each of those trials and failures informed the designers of Bitcoin of, okay, well, if we do this, this will go wrong. And if we do that, that'll go wrong. And so that's what led to, you know, all of the, the kind of the complicated things that exist within the Bitcoin network. I mean, it's a, it's a real technological breakthrough. I mean, somebody took the time to sort out the math and the, and the logic behind it and to codify it, put it down, and then to get some disciples who believed in it. And, you know, they started trading with each other and, you know, screenshotting and sending, you know, sending copies of it around. And, and it just, it just grew and grew and grew. And, uh, and now, I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, Cape Cod, I, you know, I, I'd, that's where I am right now, Cape Cod in, in the United States. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to, um, well, I, I think that, I think that it's going to spread worldwide and it has spread worldwide, but I think it's going to spread and penetrate absolutely everywhere and everything. And ultimately it will replace fiat currency. I mean, I dare say there's a, there is a positive, a possible positive outcome here. You know, once the dust settles through whatever we're living through now, that actually mm -hmm. everything changes, the monetary system changes, politics changes. If you can yes. have a, a, a money system like Bitcoin, then you can also have a political system where people can vote on stuff electronically too. Exactly, exactly. Well, and, and, and you, know, the, the, you know, the media system changes. I mean, what if people got paid in small amounts of sats for liking posts? And, you know, what if you could, you know, you read something and you, you wanted to read something and it was three cents to read it rather than subscribing to the Times? You know, I, I, I can't believe that the legacy media is going to survive this. This mess. I agree. I completely agree. I completely agree. And so, so yes, you're right. I mean, literally everything will change, and in my opinion, in a very good way. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with the book The Fourth Turning by Howard Strauss. Yeah. Um, if not, I would recommend it to you and to your audiences. It's called The Fourth Turning. It's by Howard. Strauss. And it talks about the cycles of human development and how you go through seasons of development and systems get built and they work. And they tend to run for about a generation, which is 80 years. And then they get sclerotic and they're kind of broken and they, you know, whatever's broken gets, there's a crisis and whatever's broken gets fixed. And, you know, what's fixed then, and then you're back onto a new system and it works really well for a long period of time. And then something else breaks. And so, you know, the last couple of fourth turnings, I mean, one was uh, the last big one really was this, um, you know, World War II and the Depression. Um, the last one before that was the American Civil War. And the last one before that was the American Revolution. And so each of those events, I mean, America was, America was something before the revolution and it became something different when it split from Britain. You know, America was something, you know, from the time it was formed in 1789 to 1865. And then, you know, there was the crisis over slavery and states' rights. And it became something different post-Civil War, you know, the Civil War. And then, you know, and, and so there's, there's a crisis and then there's a resolution and then we go forward. And you know the the one the big one before this was kind of the the, the sovereign debt crises of the 1910s and 20s, you know the depression of 1930, which led to you know the rise of Hitler and and, the, and you know World War II, which is truly a, a large existential fourth turning. I mean, 50 or 60 million people are estimated have died through that time period, and and then we created the post World War order, you know, based on a sound money system and Bretton Woods and the gold is at the foundation of it, but. Unfortunately, all that stuff just kept continually getting chipped away at. And as it got more and more chipped away at, more and more broken, we can now see that, in my opinion, the burning issue of our time is, is what Robert Breedlove likes to say, what is money? 
you know, and should the government be in control of printing the money? And if they are, doesn't that naturally lead to, to corruption? I mean, one of the favorite British polit- political quotes I love is the Lord Acton quote about, you know, absolute power, power, power corrupt. Yeah. yeah, corrupting absolutely, right? Do you and, think that, speaking of corruption, do you think the Biden administration can last another year? God, that's a good question. I don't do much in the way of politics. I hate all politicians. The only it's, politicians. All just a, it's all just a parlor game, I accept that. Yeah, it really is. It, it is a parlor game, and it's, it's showbiz. I mean, the only politician I've ever liked to some degree, and he's not perfect, but I liked him, was Ron Paul. I think he was an honest guy trying to do the right thing, an American politician. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a mess. I mean, politics in the U.S. is a complete shit show, and it's kind of blood sport right now. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with it, but I would say to you, if you're unfamiliar and if your listeners are unfamiliar, you should have a look at what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is saying, mm. um, because he's he's being extremely courageous. He, you know, he's not perfect, um, and anyone who studies his history will know that. Of course, no politician's perfect, but but I, he's um, saying Ron, Ron, Ron Paul might might yet be that person. <laughs> well, he was pretty close. Ron Paul's a great guy, but I know him personally, and he's a really great human being, but. But my point with Kennedy, RFK, and I, some of your listeners probably aren't familiar with him, is, you know, get on Twitter, read, read what he has to say, and you know, he can see how broken this is. And he, he understands it. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of the pieces right. He doesn't have all of them right. Um, he's anti-nuclear power, which I disagree with. I think, I think if we don't go to nuclear power, we're going to destroy the planet. Yeah, his stance on climate is about the only thing that I, I see as a, yeah. a problematic yeah, well, a, problematic. There's some, yeah, there's some other things. He's not, he's not right on everything, for sure. But boy, oh boy, I mean... He's a breath of fresh air on, you know, things like the COVID vaccine or, you know, things like sound money or things like, you know, the military industrial complex. I mean, he's had the balls to come out and basically say he thinks the CIA killed his uncle and his father. Mm. And, and in my opinion, he's right. There's evidence that suggests that they did. And, and that's a ballsy thing. I mean, the, the wags on Twitter have said, you know, they reply and say, hey, stay away from Dealey Plaza. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, you know, he's, he's, he's saying a lot of courageous stuff. And, and I think he sees, he's about the same age that I am. I think he sees what's broken in America and he's doing his very best to try and speak about it and address it. And of course, it's fascinating to me that the political powers here have done everything they can to just, you know, they say he's a conspiracy theorist, they say he's a nut job, they say he's got drug problems, you know, they, they criticize him every way from Sunday. And yet, you know, in a lot of the polls, he's doing quite well. So, but we're seeing the same kind of polarization here in the UK that, that we have yeah. one MP, a guy called Andrew Bridgen, who's spoken out against the vaccine. And uh-huh. when he speaks in Parliament, he's the only person there because everyone else has left the left the building. It's quite disgusting to watch the oh, the, the, the uniparty at, at work. Yeah, boy, that's that's sad. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, there's look. I mean, there is a there is a government narrative. That people who have the power, you know, this is this is how they fight back. I mean, they just they shame or or try to marginalize anybody who comes in with, you know, in, in many cases, fact based evidence of you know government malfeasance, and yet you know they they just they want to look the other way. So Lawrence, I know you're on a hard stop uh, for one hour. So just yeah, just before sorry about that guy. Yeah, got another one. Absolutely no problem. Just before you go, we like to just do this uh, wind down with media picks where uh, we just share a book, a film, or something that we've sure. we've watched that we we really like. And I'm going to share the Joe Rogan um, podcast with um, uh, you know uh, with 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 Kennedy. It was absolutely brilliant with Robert Kennedy. It was I thought it really it was, was, wasn't it? Yeah, oh absolutely fantastic. I was like everyone should, everyone should take the time to watch that. I mean. 
here's another perfect example. I mean, Joe Rogan has got more viewership than CNN. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And people trying to rubbish him. I don't, I don't understand it. I, people who don't listen to him, he, he's just discussing these issues. And I think you were saying earlier about how you would control the system is you would actually sit people down, talk to them and explain to them what's going on. Right. The, the main, mainstream, mainstream media hasn't picked up on the, the whole idea of long form podcasts against yes. short bursts of, of you know, crap, headline, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> bullshit, exactly. You know, but yeah. everyone else is, is crying out for like long form. Let's let's work it all out. Let's talk through the ideas, say, see where yeah. we disagree. And we yes. don't need to throw insults at each other. But but anyway, right. absolutely brilliant. I'm glad you agree with that. Um, what, what would you have for us, uh, Lawrence? What would you like to share with the? I know I've kind of chopped on you a little bit, but yeah, well, that's no, that's that's probably my favorite one. I mean, I would, um, uh, you know, there there are a lot of podcasts on um, on that people can get, and I think two very good areas that your listeners should should go take a look at if you want. Well, if you, if, if your listeners are not Bitcoin knowledgeable or Bitcoin savvy, I think they should be because I think it's an enormous, important technological innovation that that they're going to really benefit from knowing something about. I think it's got a good chance of helping save their financial bacon. And so to do that, I think they should start off, they should buy the Bitcoin standard by Saifedean Amos. I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Then I think they should dive into two sets of podcasts that you guys are maybe familiar with, maybe not. I'll tell you the two best. One's a guy named Peter McCormick, who's actually in Bedford uh, in the UK. He's a friend of mine. Um, and he does um, he does a podcast, I think it's called What Bitcoin Did. And um, he has fabulous guests on there and almost all of his podcasts are very, very useful. Um, another one that's excellent is a guy in the United States, a guy named Robert Breedlove, um, and he does a podcast, and the title of that is What is Money? Mm. Um, and these are both very simple to s- search for on YouTube or anywhere else you can do these podcasts. And in, particularly in the Breedlove one, you should listen to or you should try to seek out the podcast done by a gentleman named Michael Saylor. Michael Saylor is an MIT graduate um, aerospace engineer um, who lives in the United States and is a huge Bitcoin advocate. He's, he's truly a polymath. He's one of the smartest men I've ever heard speak. And if you listen to his, as an example, if you listen to his most recent um, podcast with, uh, with Breedlove talking about energy and how the world has gone wrong with respect to energy, um, it's just, it's earth shattering kind of stuff. Really, really earth shattering. And, and, and both of these podcasts, when you get the right people, um, there's a third one actually too, Marty Bent. Um, where uh, uh, Tales from the Crypt. But, you know, you, you listen to these people and you listen to how they analyze these things. And it, what, what I think would, you know, probably some of your listeners are feeling pretty shitty about the way the world looks right now. And I know I feel shitty about the way world, the world looks a lot of times. And I can tell you honestly that when you listen to people that you think understand what's going on and, 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 and explain it to you and then show you the way out of it, it's incredibly empowering and incredibly positive, and it gives you hope for the future. And we all live on hope, right? We want our kids to live better. We want to live better. We hope that we can push in the right direction. And, you know, any one individual doesn't have much power unless you're, you know, at the top of some structure. But but all of us collectively, we have a lot of power. And if you educate yourself and we all collectively walk in the right direction, you know, I mean, these elites who are screwing us, the system which is so broken, you know, I mean, we can all, I mean, they're supposed to be working for us. They don't, of course, they work for themselves. But if we organize, we can beat them. And that's, that's, I guess, the message I would have, which is, you know, get tapped into like-minded people that can help you think about how to organize 
and start organizing. I mean, the reason I do podcasts like the one I've just done with you guys is, you know, I'm look, I, you know, I could just sit around and be retired. I don't want to do that. Um, I, I want to change the world in a positive way for my kids and hopefully someday my grandkids when my kids get married. And, and so, you know, once you start to see what's wrong, what's broken, and it becomes so obvious and clear, then you can start to, you know, educate your friends and families and spread the word. And, you know, this is how change occurs, right? I mean, this is, takes time, but, you know, somebody in America thought, I mean, no, no offense attended to you guys sitting in Britain, but somebody in America thought, hey, you know what? This king shit really pisses us off, right? We got to get out of here, right? Well, let's and, not fall out over a cup of tea. Yeah, right. Exactly. And 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 you know, it started small, right? And but but it grew, and you know, eventually that's what led to the founding of America, which you know I still consider the founding documents of America to be the finest political documents ever written. Now, sadly, you know, I think mankind or American and American politicians have corrupted them. I mean, hell, the the Constitution says only gold and silver can be money. Well, how does that work? <laughs> you know? mm. So, um, but but my point is that you know everybody gets a vote in this system, and you know if you're angry about the way the world is, fine. You know, okay, educate yourself, put yourself in a position where you're going to benefit from the stupidity of these other people, and then do everything you can to get more and more people to see things your way, because eventually it's going to become overwhelming, and all these criminals are going to you know they're going to be thrown out. I mean. You know, health. I mean, France is looking like 1789. I don't know if the guillotine's mm. coming back. It should, but um, you know, I mean, these these people are just—they're they're very bad people. The people who are running these these countries—they really are. I mean, America spent 10 billion dollars on wars in the Middle East. It didn't win, and and meanwhile, we killed millions of Middle Easterners and maimed a lot of Americans. I walk around American, you know, airports and I see soldiers that had their arm blown off or their leg blown off or whatever the hell it is. I'm just like, God, it's just so sad. It didn't have to be. You know, and it, it was all the military industrial complex that did it. And that's just, that's wrong. I mean, I grew up, I grew up during the Vietnam era. And, you know, I think one of the great tragedies of my father's generation, the generation, um, you know, that was more adult when I was growing up was that, you know, they didn't manage to stop the Vietnam War earlier. They let, they let Nixon carpet bomb the North. And I mean, you realize we killed 3 million Vietnamese and most of them were citizens. I mean, you know, we, we killed 3 million rice farmers. It's half the Holocaust. And it's all because Henry Kissinger had a heart on and decided he wanted to, you know, try and stop the spread of communism. I mean, what a bunch of bullshit. The guy's a war criminal. So, you know, um, like I say, we all get a vote in this world. You know, you, you can decide what you're going to do with your life. And my vote is to try to advocate for a fairer system where, you know, my kids will have, will live in a, a world with less war and more income inequality, more income equality and, and just more fairness. And so I, and I think sound money, I, my pitch on Twitter uh, is fix the money, fix the world. I really do think that's right. I think what's broken is the money that has led to a lot of the problems we have today. It's sad that most people can't see that, but more and more people are seeing it. So we're going in the right direction. Actually, guys, I'm a few minutes over here and I am supposed to hop on another call. So it's been really great talking to you. I enjoyed it. I'm happy to come back any other time. That'd be great. J I, just just tell us where your, your handles are, just so we can... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So on Twitter, it's just my name, Lawrence Lepard, L-E-P-A-R-D, all one word. And then my, my website for my company, and you can sign up for a free newsletter. We'll never spam you. Um, but every quarter we write a newsletter, kind of macro outlooky stuff. Um, and they're on there. You can just click on them and print them out. Um, is EMA, so Edward Mark Alpha, then the number two, Dot com so www.ema2.com and you know my background's on there and like i say 
free free newsletters. There's a Bitcoin paper on there. There are lots of stuff, lots of lots of information about investing. And then anyone who wants to invest, you can do so. The I'll tell you this: the SEC, the U.S. SEC, has completely disadvantaged small investors, and so. Uh, sadly, I can't take an account unless it's a 200,000 US dollar account. But anybody who has that size account or more, they could invest in my fund if they wanted to. Brilliant. Thank you so much. We'll put links in the show notes. Hope to have you back. Well, I appreciate it's been, that. It's been Thanks, guys. Like I said, I'd, I'd be happy to come back at any point in the future. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Cheers, it. Cheers, Lawrence. Great fun. Cheers, Lawrence. Cheers. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.